as Jeff told you, for 25 years or more, uh, really all I did was plant churches. You know, sometimes I felt like I was just a pastor with ADD. I couldn't stay in one place very long. Planted a lot of churches in a lot of different places and really felt called to do that. Uh, most recently, I went to Canada and had the great opportunity to plant churches in, in uh, Montreal. And when I went to Canada uh, in about 2000, 2001, there was like 150 Southern Baptist churches across the whole continent of Canada. And where I'm from in Kansas City, there are three Baptist associations, and the one association that I'm in has two counties. And while there were 150 Southern Baptist churches across six time zones in Canada, there were 120 Southern Baptist churches in two counties in Kansas City. And so when, when I came back to Kansas City to be the associate director of missions there, I really had to process what's this church planting about in a place where there's 120 churches and frankly, 85% of them are in serious decline and well over half of them are, are really ready to close. What's that mean? And let me, let me tell you, strategically, <laughs> it is easier to just go into a daycare or a school building or something and, and plant a new church than to go to the old dying church with 25 or 30 or 18 people left and problems that are legion and try to work through those. So from a pure strategic standpoint, church planting is far easier. And I've done both. And it's never easy to plant a church, but it's far easier. For one thing, it's a lot easier to ask people to come to something with 8 or 12 people if it's brand new. <laughs> Hey, come check this out. There's 8, 12, 14. We're meeting in my home. It's brand new. Or to say, hey, come check out this 100-year-old church. It's down to a dozen right now. Let's, let's see how exciting that is. All right? You want to be part of this? And so, I mean, just that in and of itself is an issue. One of the guys that really shaped who I am was Charles Cheney. And I was this young kid at, at the Home Mission Board, and he was the vice president and I remember one day, Cheney came in and he opened up his Bible and he began to teach a lesson to, to us on the staff there. And he opened up to Acts chapter 6 and he began to read about the selection of deacons. Now, Charles could see church planting in every passage of the scripture. So I was real anxious to figure out how this was a church planting story. And as he, as he read that text... There was a fight between the Hellenistic Jews and, and widows and, and, the, and the Jewish widows over the distribution of food. They weren't getting along. And, and, you know, the apostles came together, worked it out, didn't split and create a Hellenistic Jewish church and another Jewish church across the street from each other. They, they kept in one church and they worked it out. And Dr. Cheney said, as you read the text, it said that after that, many of the priests became believers. And after that, the Pharisees determined, we've got to persecute this church. It's a danger to us. And they sought to stone Stephen. Well, what's that say? That says that, that in many ways, those Pharisees had seen all kinds of religious sects pop up and go away, and they really weren't a threat. But there was something different about this one. What was different about this one was they, they behaved differently than the rest of the world. 
And, and they worked through these problems and were stronger on the other side of them. All of that to say, when you revitalize and replant a church, the world can't ignore it. When, when a church has been there and has been in decline and maybe has a bad history and has fought and struggled and the, even the building looks like it's ready to, to be closed and everybody, there's three cars in the parking lot on Sundays and they've fired pastors and the community's done with them and, and then all of a sudden, well, not all of a sudden, trust me, but eventually, eventually, it, become, it comes back to life. And then one day it kind of hits a tipping point and it actually starts to roar back to life. Same, listen, same name, same building, and even some of the same old people. And the neighborhood can't ignore that. This is so different. I mean, and you're talking, I'm, I love church planting. I've given my life to church planting. Our church plants churches. I meet literally every day with church planters in Kansas City and coach them. I believe in it. But there are certain things you can do in church planting. You can, you can come up with a website. You can pick a cool location. You can have a great praise band. You can have good child care. There are certain things you can do. And the world looks at that and goes, yeah, I, I see that. You, started, you, you planted a new church. You got some people around you. But when you see a church that was ready to be totally have dirt shoveled over it and it we don't like and i'm not saying there isn't time you you don't take over the building but in this case you don't kick the people out you don't take over the building you let god plant something new in that thing among those people and when it begins to grow and develop people go i've never seen that before and it's a great living sermon on the corner that says, you know, just how you thought your marriage was over, just how you thought your life was over, just how you thought nothing was going to work for you anymore, just how everybody was ready to toss you aside. This is what the gospel can do. It can take something so ready to be closed and bring it back better than it ever was before. And it's a living sermon and it's, it's a great example so I'm passionate about replanting churches. It is a two-for-one. You not only get to plant a new church, you get to save a church. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. But we talk about for God's glory and your joy, and I'll, I'll talk about it here in a second. I mean, this is, we call it legacy church planting because we plant it on the legacy of, of a church. This is the church that I, I'm at. Uh, this was not taken last Sunday, by the way. This is Warner Road Baptist Church in the heart of Kansas City. Take it, 1936 was this picture, but the pews are the same, the pulpit's the same, the light fixtures are the same. Actually, there's one lady that's the same. I'm not kidding. Kathy Jackson. Seriously. She was a little girl. She's in that picture somewhere, she says, but she's been there. Church was started in 21. Her parents came, I think, in 29, and she's been there. So she's there. I, I title this photo, When Southern Baptists Rule the World. Um, is there was a time when we did rule the world. Everybody came church in suits, by the way. But, you know, it was, it was the main church of its day. Um, but for reasons that don't... Be, the point of this conference is not to go into these reasons, but for reasons that don't bear going into at this point, it actually it declined, declined, declined. It fussed, it fought, it quarreled. It had a lot of money, which is... a Listen, Lyle Schaller says money is the death wheeze of a church, right? I believe him. 
I mean, you can say, you know, we've, we've got some money. Well, that's like a death wheeze. I mean, that's not going to be helpful to you. I mean, if money could grow a church, they would never have declined because they always had plenty of it. As recently as 2000, they had a quarter of a million dollars in the Missouri Baptist Foundation. They only had about 75 people. And in five years, they're able to spend that down to zero and actually have 18 people. So money does not do it. And actually, it's often not until the money is exhausted that their appetite for change is, is heightened, okay? Anyway, so this was, this was Warner Road Baptist Church, and we call it Legacy Church Planting, all right? There's a few things about it, and then I'm going to talk to you about some of the, the steps we took in it. But Legacy Church Planting is planting a new church in a dying or declining church. This is kind of what it looked like after a year of my hard work. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I mean, I'll talk about that in a minute. But you've got to lower your expectations somewhat. It, it's a long runway to do this kind of thing. All right. I mean, 10, 12 years ago, I, when I worked with 20 years ago, worked for the Home Mission Board, we had this thing called the phones for you. I know it sounds crazy now, but anybody remember that where you could you could actually we actually think where we would robocall people. This is back when it was new and you'd robocall people. You call five, 50,000 people and ask, hey, there's a new church in your neighborhood. Would you like to know more about it? If they said yes, then you send them five direct mails and follow up and you would have 400 people on your first Sunday. And it often happened. And so we had this short runway where we want a large number of people right away. That's not going to happen here. All right. So, I mean, this was literally and there were many weeks that I would come home and get online and look for directors of missions jobs in other parts of the country, because this is so hard. This is harder than Montreal. It's harder than any church plant I've ever done. But at the same time. A dying church robs God of his glory. And I don't, we're created to make much of him and to glorify him. And there's nothing, there's nothing about a dying church that makes much of God in that neighborhood. It robs God of his glory. And Satan desires to steal God's glory. And so if I've got if I gotta, if I gotta burn up my life, if I've got to give up my life, if I've got to do those, if I've got to, if I gotta, you know, the, the Apostle Paul, if he were standing here and he took off his shirt and turned around and you saw his back, it was a mass of scars from the, his neck to his back. He'd beaten so many times, you know, they, didn't have, they couldn't do stitches, they didn't have antiseptic creams. I mean, his, his body was a mass of scars. So when he said, if the gospel, if Christ be not raised from the dead, we above all men are to be most pitied. Why? Well, look at his back. In other words, look at what the gospel has cost him. If it's not true, look at the scars he's born. And I began to think, what has the gospel cost me? It's been a pretty good career. I got a job. I got denominational jobs. had health insurance. And all of a sudden I realized God's called me to go to a place that this, this may give me some scars. This may be really hard. But I got, I got all eternity to enjoy it. The only time I can really take one, so to speak, for the Lord is here. So let's put on the helmet and get out on the field and give me your best shot. And that's what this is. This is not easy. 800 churches a year close in the SBC. We're concerned about the net gain of churches. We can't deal with the net gain of churches till we deal with that number. Because you've got to start 800 before you gain one. And gaining one and gaining 100, gaining 200 a year... 
It's not going to do it in the United States. So we now not all those 800 need to remain open. I'll grant you that. Some of them are where there are no people anymore, perhaps. But if we can just do two or 300 and keep them from closing, that increases the net. And again, it brings God all kinds of glory. Up to 85% of all SBC churches are in serious decline. And without the new churches, the SBC would be in critical decline. Uh, when I was in Kansas, Nebraska, we, we one time took all the churches that were planted in the last 15 years. We took those numbers out for baptisms and, and attendance and so forth. And we just looked at the churches that were left. And the denominational statistics, if you took out the churches planted in the last 20 years, you I mean, it would be a nosedive. I mean, almost all of the growth are in new churches. And yet, if we could see these old churches come back and become alive, how that would greatly impact those kinds of things. So that's what we talk about and we talk about legacy church planning. It's also building on the legacy of ministry and missions in a dying church. Every dying church had it sometime when it was growing, when it was living. So the first thing I did was go back and learn the history of Warnell and find the good things that happened. And this, I love history. So this is, indulge me, okay? I, I put this together. I can put our pictures I want on it. This, this is Harry Truman, all right? He was a Southern Baptist member of First Baptist Church of Grandview. But I don't think he went very much. But this is Dr. Wallace Graham. Wallace Graham was at Omaha Beach on D-Day. He became the head of Walter Reed Medical Center. He was the lifelong physician of President Truman. He was the official White House physician. He was a 47-year member of Warner Road Baptist Church. That's pretty cool. There was a time in the 40s and 30s and 50s when this church had tremendous influence all across our city, all around our world. There was a time when... The president of the Sunday School Board preached there on many occasions. President of the International Mission, Home Mission Board, Foreign Mission Board. Whenever the SBC would be in Kansas City, that's the church they'd, he'd preach at. I mean, it was it had it had missionaries that had gone out. Anybody know Camadiner? Is it Leslie? That's right. You know, worked uh, at IMB, was vice president. Grew up in that church. Okay, tremendous history. Now, you wouldn't know it when you show up in the year 2000 and there are 18 people who are unhappy and the whole thing. But there was a time. So you go back and you, you find that legacy and, and you connect to that in order to, to, as, you, as you deal with it so, so that you're building on the legacy of history and missions that was there. And for the older people who remain, that is critically important to getting, to, to getting their buy-in. You're not just saying to them... You guys have blown it, and everything to this point has been a waste, and now i got some 23-year-old pastor who will come in here, and he's going to tell you how to do it, because that's not going to work very well. We do talk about redeeming the building. Most of these churches are built, they were, the buildings were built at a time when the church was the largest it ever was, and they built it to be 25% larger. <laughs> and then they began to decline right after that. So most of them are in a building that's way too large for themselves. And that hurts for social validation. In other words, when I showed you the picture of Warnell, the seating capacity was 610. You have 18 in there on a Sunday morning. You could, you could literally fire a cannon in that place and not hit anybody on Sunday morning. There was just nobody in there. And there were many Sundays, not a few, but many Sundays... I would stand up there. What's the point of asking everybody to come down front? I mean, that didn't work anyway. 18 of them are 20 or 25 scattered out there. There were many Sundays. It's a big church. I'll show you the building in a minute. On a prominent corner. There were many Sundays people would show up, visitors, thinking, oh, well, this is a big Baptist church. You know, and they walk in and they would turn around and walk out. 
And if you don't think I didn't want to just follow him, say, well, I don't know where you're going, but let's, let's go together, all right? I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. Or even worse yet, they would come in and sit down and look real uncomfortable, and we'd stand to sing, and then they would get out. Do you blame them? Everything about that said this is a sick, dysfunctional place. And I don't know too many people who woke up on Sunday morning and said, you know, we need to find a church, and it needs to be really sick and dysfunctional. Because we are so healthy and we are so perfect that we just got to go invest ourselves in some place that needs a lot of help. That's not what they say. And so that, that became a real struggle. And so these buildings are huge. And one of the things we did right away was, if you saw that picture, they had pews so close together. It was, if you got old buildings, they put pews so close together that you couldn't walk this way and you had to turn this way and, I'm not, and go into the pew, okay? And they had aisles that were like, we couldn't get a bride, and a, a bride and her dad down the aisle. Seriously. Because their whole idea was to cram as many... The architecture in 1929 was come into the church and sit down and then get up and then leave and don't hang out in the building at all. Because there's no vestibule, there's no foyer, there's no wide aisles. That's not the way people are today. They don't like that. They don't feel comfortable with that. And so we went in and we, we thinned out the pews. Okay, we took, about, we took about a third of the pews out and spread them apart. And then we cut off the ends of the pews and shortened them by about half seriously and then put the ends back on so we reduced our seating capacity from 610 to just under 300 (laughs) so that helped (laughs) all right now but the rest of the building is still huge so it's important to redeem and we talked from the very beginning we want to redeem this building, this building. And by that, we mean we want to use it, every inch of it, for the kingdom. And so, well, the first three weeks we were in there, we found a Laotian church that needed a place, and we invited them to come be with us. And they were bigger than we were. And they were in our chapel, and we were up in this huge sanctuary. But they came. And since that time, we've never had a time when we didn't have two other daughter churches meeting simultaneous with us. Now, I, you know, I like to plant churches, and I hang out with church planters, and so that came very natural to me. But we use this church as an incubator to plant new churches. We've had as many as five at the same time on Sundays, two or three in the morning, one in the afternoon, one in the evening. Right now, we have two that meet simultaneous with us, and then one that meets in the afternoon. The ones that meet simultaneous meet in different parts of the building, but the children and youth all go to the same ministry. I'll tell you more about that in a minute. But we call that redeeming the building. We have a maternity home in town that uses it for their offices and their, their baby supply store and their, their uh, adoption center. We have a family Christian counseling center that uses it. All summer long, the Kansas City, Missouri Public School, which is across the street from us, uses our building for their summer school program. Uh, we let... When I went, they had a building use policy that was a three-ring binder. I'll tell you about that in a minute. Okay, redeeming the building. Redeeming the resources. All these churches have pianos and different things like that. And so we, this is our, the, the Hispanic pastor and his son. They teach music lessons, so they use our building. They use the piano. They use things. They just put signs around town in Spanish. Free music lessons for adults. Learn to play the piano. Learn to play the guitar. They show up, they use our building, uh, they teach them to play guitar, they teach them to play. One Sunday, Ernesto told me, he said, we're going to have a dinner after church and we're going to provide it. Our Hispanic Bible, I, I thought he meant his Hispanic church was going to provide it. I said, it's great. So I tell everybody, and so after church, we go downstairs, this beautiful bunch of food set out there. And I don't recognize any of these people. So I asked Ernesto, I said, who are they? He said, these are our music class students. 
They don't even, they don't even go to his church. And then he had this, he had on our, on our stage in the fellowship hall, he had these chairs set up, and he, he had them play a little recital. It was just awful. But he had them play this little recital. And, and you know, that's what you call just sharing the resources. Using the, it's got, it's a building, and they're instruments. How many churches have like 10 old pianos, you know? So, you know, teach piano, any, whatever. That, that's, okay, sharing the resources. All right. I want to talk real quickly about normative-sized churches. That's, that's a word I use. I do not like the word small. 95% of all churches in North America, I got that out of this book called Embers to a Flame, 95% of all churches, not Southern Baptist only, but all churches, average less than 100 in worship. Southern Baptist churches, it's somewhere around 85% or so, and uh, under 200, actually. And... You know, we talk about, well, it's a small church, it's a small church. Look, if you're 95% of a set, I don't think you can call that small. That's normal. The other churches are like the really weird, abnormal things that that, that are so different. I mean, what they do is awesome and needful and great and everything. But God has gifted for His pleasure and by His design, God has gifted very few of us to lead that size church. But by his design, he has gifted many of us to lead that size church. And rather than for us to get all wicked out and upset and depressed and discouraged about it, we ought to embrace it. Because I think God seriously wants a lot of normative sized churches all across every neighborhood in every part of our city. And so one of the main reasons for church planters and replanters that burn out is they have unrealized expectations of the size. And I know what I'm talking about because I've experienced it. It drains your leadership, those unrealized expectations. Oh, my young elders absolutely scold me when they can tell I'm standing there counting people on Sunday morning. And they know I do it and I can't help it. I'm obsessed. I'm a pastor all my life. I count. But they tell me, don't count because we know when you count. If there's more than there were last week, you feel giddy. If there's less than there were last week, you feel depressed. Don't do that. And one of my elders said, what's that teach our people about the gospel? Unrealized expectations. Oh, how many do we have today? What are you running? Which is the strangest thing anybody could ever ask. We ask it all the time. What are you guys running today? I don't know. We're running the air conditioner, I guess. Okay. There's an amazing power in the neighborhood church. And at Warnell, our passion is that over half the people who are members could walk to church if they had to. Because we're in a neighborhood. You walk outside our door, there are houses out. We're in a neighborhood. That is what our country needs. Warnell will never be a regional church because there are some amazing, strong regional churches in our city. And we can't do those things. We cannot. We don't have the money. We don't have the leadership. We cannot, but we can do things they can never do. We can be the church in the neighborhood. And we even have a bike rack because we want people to ride their bikes to church. And I got these people who love green stuff and they ride their bikes to church. And so we, we want to be, there's an amazing power. We've lost that, I think, to a great degree. The power of that neighborhood church. I'm, you know, I often wear a hat. That's because I like hats, but I'm also kind of known for that. And so when I walk around our neighborhood of Brookside, they know me as the Baptist pastor because of my hat. They know who I am around there. Um, I just don't have time. The, anyway.
The man who preaches knows every child's name. <laughs> Look, there's a lot that we can't offer these young families when they come. The other churches can. But there's something awful powerful about the guy who brings the word of God that Sunday morning, stepping off that platform and talking to a four-year-old by name and knowing, where, knowing who his grandparents are and knowing what his dog's name is and having his picture taken with him and putting it on your Facebook, being proud of it. Don't ever underestimate the power of a normative-sized church and the joy of pastoring a normative-sized church. I mean, I, it's, it's amazing. And we've often talked about the difference. The normative-sized church is like a PT boat rather than a battleship. You can't. You got to have both. You got to have battleships. But that PT boat can move quicker. It can do things. You know the whole bit. That's another sermon for another day. Here are the five or seven things that 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 inform us as we as we've worked with Warnell now for six years. First and foremost, we do it for God's glory. We don't do it for strategic reasons. We don't even do it. Don't hear what I'm not saying. We don't even do it to reach the neighborhood or to evangelize. We do it for God's glory. As as Piper says, missions is not ultimate. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Okay? So it's for God's glory. We desire everyone in that neighborhood to know who God is and know the pure joy of making much of Him. That will necessitate us sharing the gospel with them so they can come into a saving knowledge of Him. But it's not a strategy that drives us. Because if it's a strategy that drives us, we'll soon wear out and say there's got to be a better way to reach this neighborhood. You know what I mean? Because there is an easier way to reach this neighborhood, all right? So it's not strategy-driven. It's driven on the power of doing this for God's glory first and foremost. How will God's name be made much of on this corner when we come back together and have relevance and meaning and impact and as we say every Sunday, our church, the community is noticeably better because this church is here. And we're truly a city on a hill. And people look at us and go, they've got old people there and young people there. And they've got people who've been there for 60 years and people who came last week. And they're all working together. And that church that was dead is back. It is, it is, and so when you talk to these elderly people, and believe me, I not have time in the next 15 minutes to tell you how to do all that. But, but when you talk to these older members you don't talk to them about this is the best way to reach people. They may hear that for a minute, but that's not going to sustain them. You help them come to the place over a period of months, if not years. This is an act of worship for you. This is how you make much of God with the remaining years of your life. You see this church come back and you're willing to do whatever it takes. This is an act of worship for God. That's so different than this is the best way to get it done because they'll argue with you about that anyway. Okay, so and we never quit talking about everything we do is for God's glory, first and foremost. Firm in your commitment to the gospel. Warnell had long wandered off the fidelity of Scripture and long wandered off the commitment to the gospel. And, and we can talk lengthy about that, but that has to happen. You've got to have the right message and you've got to believe the Bible in order to see this happen. Consistent in your prayer. You've got to believe that prayer is wartime communication, and prayer is so important. And listen, I'll show you our young elders in a minute. But one of the things that Richard Blackaby came and, and, and met with our elders, and, and it was a great time with him, and one of the things he said that has really, really shaped us, okay, when it comes to prayer and Scripture reading, he said, he, told, he asked our young pastors, he said, what about the way you pray in public 
or read. We always say we want our people to be people of prayer, right? Oh, we'd like our church to be a church. We sure wish our people would read their Bible and love the word. Wish they'd pray. So Richard said, what about the way as as young pastors, what about the way you pray in public and read scripture in public makes anybody in church say, I can't wait to go home and do that. So I have asked our young pastors to spend a tremendous amount of time in preparing their public prayers. I even want them to write them out, which I grew up, my dad was a pastor. He's like, you can't read a prayer. It's got to come from the heart. Well, it's got to come from the heart, but it can come from the heart as you work and labor over it for a few days to say just exactly what you want to communicate. When you think about how much time as a pastor, how much time you spend talking to your people about God, preparing to talk to your people about God, how many hours a week you spend in sermon preparation preparing to talk to your people about God, and how few hours you and I spend preparing to talk to God about our people in front of them. And I'm just saying all that to say that the church needs to have an attitude that prayer really is powerful. It really does have purpose, and we really do believe in it, and it really is wartime communication, and we really can't break these strongholds, and we can't deal with the pride and the anger and the bitterness in our hearts and our souls without real broken prayer. And when you come and you hear a young 28-year-old kid pray something that he's written and prayed over and worked over for a day or two, and you realize this is not the same kind of stuff I've heard, this kid really believes in prayer, it really changes things. And I just you have to be intentional about that. So we make prayer incredibly important and even public prayer incredibly important. That's our church praying uh, for the high school next door. Okay, then this is where I guess really gets to the nitty gritty. You're consistent in your prayer. Number four, you're efficient in your organization and leadership, especially the pastor. Okay, that's code word for we got to throw this constitution away and do something different, okay? <laughs> In other words, you've got to change the way decisions are made, and you've got to change who's making the decisions. All right? But you notice you don't start with that. You don't walk in and go, okay, we've got to change the way decisions are. I'm sorry, because I will promise you this. The majority of declining churches value the process of the decision more than the outcome of the decision. They value that everybody knows that the process has been followed, that we've done it the right way, the outcome, uh, whatever. And if the process messes up the outcome, must have been something wrong with the outcome because the process is never wrong. We don't know where the process came from, but it's, it is priceless. And if we interrupt the process, then that means you don't trust us. And that means, and so you can't start with that. You start with those other things I talked about, but you get to the point where you have to say, we've got to change the way decisions are made. And this is where you begin to talk to them about new churches and say, you know what? If we were a brand new church, we would not have this structure in this organization. Let me share with you the kind of structure and organization a new church has. And let me tell you why they have it. Because a new church operates from the balls of their feet. They're ready to pivot, ready to pounce, ready to jump at any moment. They can make decisions quickly. They can react to what God's doing. We talk about Henry Blackaby all the time, find out where God's at work, and then go through this real lengthy process to see if you're supposed to join him in it. Actually... Find out where God's at work, and that is, his, that is his invitation for you to join him in it. And so our structure doesn't allow us to do that. So we streamline the structure. And what I eventually did with Warnell was simply say, for six months we're going to suspend the Constitution and bylaws, and then after they pick themselves up off the floor, 
and we're ready to call some, you know, the court system or something. Can we do that? Of course you can do that. You know what a church is? A church is a flock, a fold, and a family. It is not a democracy. It is not a civic club. It is a flock, a fold, and a family. And so we're going to act like a flock, a fold, and a family. And we're all going to agree by consensus. We're just going to suspend the Constitution. By- bylaws are wartime communication written in peacetime. All right? If anybody whips out the bylaws in business meeting, you're done for anyway. Right? So let's just deal with that. So we're going to suspend the Constitution and bylaws. And then I'm going to pick, this is what I said in my case, and, and we'll, there are different ways of doing it, but you've got to do something. I said, I'm going to pick two of you, and the three of us will make every decision for the next six months short of going in debt or selling the building and closing the church. And again, after they picked themselves up off of the floor, uh, they didn't have many options because they had no money and they had to make their, their utility payments. And I, I could dangle out there some denominational money if they would do this let's just be frank about that and so in a sense that sweetened a little bit but basically there was one older lady who just was a great gracious woman and i won't go into it now but god spoke to her heart she spoke to that she made the motion everybody agreed and so for the next six months that's how we functioned and then over time we developed a new constitution and bylaws and we we are very different than the old form of governance they had the form of governance you have is not as important as that it functions well, it functions quickly, and it, it works in your place. Um, and, but we can, if you want to email me, I can give you some ideas. Then the pastor. Most of the time, you're going to have to have a pastoral change to really do this. So the best opportunity is when, or the pastor has to have a tremendous hunger to change, and you can coach him up. I mean, if he's a relatively new pastor, he just got there, Absolutely. But if he's one that's been part of the decline over the last 30 or 40 years, unless you can really coach him up and help him see something new, that's going to be a bit of a struggle. But a lot, but the pastor. So we, we either find a new one, help him find a new one, or if there's a recent one there, we, we coach him up. But obviously, he is the key. Although, in a small church of 30 or 40, he's not as important as he is in a large church. And they'll remind him of that on a regular basis. So you've got to create a structure that allows him to work and function and support. But you've got to be efficient in your organization. You've got to change the way decisions are made. You've got to value the outcome more than the process. And it's got to be based on the trust of one another rather than on a process. You've got to be incarnate in your setting. Um, if, if you leave your church on Sunday morning at 1030, you go to the nearest quick shop or McDonald's or coffee shop, and the people in that place don't look like the people you left, you've got a major problem. You've got to be incarnate in your setting. You've got to get into their lives. You have block parties and fairs and festivals, not to get people in your building, but to get your people into the lives of your neighbors. Okay? So, so the purpose of the block party is to get them, get you into their lives so that another church comes in and runs the snow cone machine and the cotton candy machine and your 18 or 20 people with their names printed on cards and their email addresses goes out and talks to the people who are getting the snow cones and says, look, I can't promise anything, but if you ever need emergency child care, check me out, give me a call, maybe we can help you out. If you ever have a problem, with you, you know, find some way. And then to deal with all the organizations in your community that need help, that need, need volunteers, Meals on Wheels, boys clubs, high schools, whatever it is, and find ways to actually be incarnate in your setting. Uh, generous with your resources. And we talk about preaching the gospel. This helps them learn to share their resources, redeeming the bill. It's very important for them to create a heart of generosity, not stinginess, and hold on to things. I do not have time for all these. Intentionally, this is, this is the critical, critical one. 
All those other things are important, but this is the thing that pulls the trigger. There's a book called Why Men Hate to Go to Church. And in it, it says, Most young men between the ages of 18 and 35 feel about as comfortable in your church as they do holding their wife's purse outside the dressing room at Penny's. And uh, when you, all you got to do is look at your church architecturally, look at the way it's designed inside, look at what happens on Sunday morning, and you'll soon realize that's probably true. And, and even when, when we were trying to get restarted, we would have to print in the bulletin, you know, um, explain why there's nobody here, you know. Uh, we're seeking to replant this church. God's seeking to replant this. We're seeking to replant this church with, with God and, and so forth. And I'd say this is a great journey of renewal, and we invite you to come alongside and be part of this great experience. I had two boys at K-State at the time. They were home one weekend. I had the bulletin in front of me at home, and I said, Trenton, do you ever sit around Aggieville, and would you ever say to one of your friends, would you join me on a journey of renewal? And he said, no, I don't think that would probably happen. And so I realized I, was even, I wouldn't even listen to myself. So we reworded that, and so what we put there, and I think it's still there today, is uh, God is replanting this church, and it's, it's the most difficult thing anybody may ever ask you to do. And if you, it's not for everybody, but if you're up for it, it could be the most thrilling ride of your life. Young men are attracted to church plants because they're hard work, because you're challenging them to do something, because they're following a leader. They're, they're not following a program. They're not really even following a vision as much as they're following the one who's casting the vision initially. Young men follow men. And so what I did, spent the majority of my time early on loving those older people, connecting to their culture, all that stuff, sharing the gospel with him, but my majority of my time was spent trying to find 18 to 35-year-old young men in our community, in our neighborhood, and I would invest my lives in them. Get to know them at our activities, our fairs, our concerts. The kid, the Indian young man in the middle, great preacher, awesome guy. Kumar preaches for me. He's moving to Philadelphia, but he works for a pharmaceutical company. Awesome kid. We had a concert in our church, and a friend of his friend of a friend came to that and in other words we got connected some way and i just started meeting with him one-on-one and then these other guys and you just you just meet them for coffee and you just get to know them and get in their lives and you intentionally provide them opportunities then to have leadership and and that's the key you know again i don't know if i'm being recorded or not and i do not want to be uh this this I, I, 30 years of being a pastor, a church planner, and my dad, bad being a pastor, my dad being a pastor, I never had anybody come and say, you know, Mark, what we really need are some like 70 to 80 year old widows. That would that would really grow our church. Um, not that there's anything wrong with that. Or what we really, what they always say is we need young men. And the truth of the matter is, if you if you focus on these young men between the ages of 18 and 35, you'll have their wives, and you'll have the kids, and you'll have older people because they don't have to do all the work and you'll have even younger teenagers because they respect these guys and so i have these are our these are our i call them pastor leaders but they're elders and they help me pastor the church and and i bring them along very very quickly by the way great movements of god throughout all of christian history check it out have never started with men my age they started with teenagers and 20-somethings. And I want to surround myself with guys this age and 
and and let them preach and let them lead worship and let them and then they dissect and my sermons every Sunday night and send me emails and tell me what I did wrong and what I did right and what we need to do different and they're very getting really good at that actually but that's because they have ownership and and just take a look at that book why men hate to go to church just in you know if you're a pastor of a small declining church just find some guys in your neighborhood figure out some way to invest in them have a bible study in your home meet them at starbucks but just start doing the work of a church planter among that age group and then once they're connected to you they'll march into hell with you and they'll march into warner road baptist church with you okay so i mean that's that's not that those two things are remotely the same but they will Cultivate service to your community. The people in the community don't really care whether your church grows or not, but they do care about their community. So our point of meeting unchurched people in our community was serving the community. The biggest problem we had was the high school next to us was a total wreck, had three principals in one year, had over 50 fights where the police were called, had five fires. They almost closed the thing down. 1,200 students, 7th through 12th grade, bust in from all over Kansas City because Kansas City closed a lot of their high schools. It was total chaos. And we didn't have any youth in our church. Not a one. Had a lot of little children. We've had 14 babies born in the last 10 months. I did a baby dedication on Mother's Day. Had 12 babies. And we, didn't, we didn't have a kid in our church for the first year. So that was, I got real emotional with dedicating 12 babies. We still don't have any teenagers to speak of. Three or four. Well, I shouldn't say that. There's something to speak of. But, but back when we started this, we had no youth group whatsoever. But we had 1,200 kids a block from our church. So that became our youth group. So we started this relationship with Southwest High School, and we eventually became the, the place where we fed them every pregame meal, 100 kids a week. We showed up at their at homecoming. We paid for their homecoming. We bought banners to hang at the stadium. Our people showed up and cheered them on. We adopted individual, individual athletes, and our parents, our people would wear that kid's number. One of them eventually ended up living with my wife and I. He was homeless. Up to 20% of the kids at Southwest High School are classified as homeless. So one of them lived with us, uh, which was a great joy. I was able to be the, the character coach, not the chaplain, the character coach of the high school football team was at all the practices and on the sidelines. School, the, the team, there was only one other really white kid on the team, and that was the coach's son. I mean, but I was able to really connect with them in a powerful and meaningful way. Uh, this is one of our gospel community groups, and they were doing a garage sale to help some local children. But anyway, this kid here is Ricky. That was the night of homecoming. Uh, they never had, you know, uh, cars in their homecoming. We had a couple of elderly people who had really cool old convertibles, so they let them donate those. So the girls got to ride into the stadium in old convertibles. Ricky was ROTC. He was uh, football, baseball rather, and. Uh, uh, a scholar ready to go to college and three or four weeks after this picture was taken he was shot in a drive-by shooting and killed and uh, really got to minister to his mom i got to speak at the school at their at their service and on the steps of the school and so we realized then of the murders in our community so we we uh we put out a cross on our lawn a very prominent place a white cross for every murder victim in kansas city in, in that year of 2011 and then um we then put the name of every murder victim and we put them as the, as the date that they were murdered. And then the family started coming by and laying flowers and stuff. So then on the 20th of December, we had the longest night where we invited all the families of all these murder victims to come to our church. Damon, who spoke this morning, Horton is one of our daughter church pastors. He came and did a great job of, of bringing a sermon and a, a service. We fed them and we connected with them. And they've asked us, the Ad Hoc Council Against Crime has asked us to do that again this year and we will. This is... 
a church that at the time, you know, we might have 100 in worship. But if you cultivate service to the community, I can't tell you how many people show up at our door now, literally on Sunday mornings, and I say, you know, what brought you here? So we know all that you did for Southwest. We know what you did for, there was a Waldo, there was a rapist in our neighborhood that raped like five or six women over just literally a year time period. We, we did nighttime prayer walks with flashlights. We'd go walk the streets and pray for the safety of the streets. And some people thought we were nuts, but a lot of people really appreciated us being out there. And they knew we did that. So you, you got to get these older declining churches out of their building and into the community. And if you need help being creative about that, talk to your director of missions, talk to your state convention. There's all kinds of... Talk to a church planter. Man, we have something called Plant KC in Kansas City where we hang out with church planters. And I'm always trying to get pastors of declining churches to hang out with church planters because church planters got tons of ideas and some of them are actually okay. And so <laughs> just, just talk to church planters. And seriously, just hang out. Just ask, tell a church planter what your neighborhood's like and let him come up with some cool ideas. And then you've got to simplify your strategy. Sometimes the smallest churches have the most complicated church organizations. I was dealing with a church that went through the whole process, would not accept the prescriptions. They couldn't let go of things. I mean, it was like, well, what do we do about, and I won't name the organization, but you can fill in the blank. What do we do about X, Y, and Z? Well, we've got, we got to define what success is. It's success, that's, that's another important thing. You've got to define what success is, making God much of God and, and glorifying Him as we see Christians people come to Christ, disciples made, and the community transformed. Glorifying God as we see people come to Christ, disciples made, and the community transformed. Has this thing going on on Wednesday nights done that in the last three years? Well, no, but we really like it. Well, good, but we can't do it. You're 40 people. You can't do all these. So what we do is got to make it simple. At Warnell, we call it W plus 2. That means if someone comes and says, I want to be a member at Warnell, what's it mean to connect to Warnell? It means worship is the W. Gospel-centered, gathered worship, going hard for God. That's where we model prayer. It's where we model making much of God. It's where we get their hearts warm to the gospel. It's, in, it's absolutely significant. It, it's so important. And so it's not negotiable. If you're, if you're in town and you're not sick and you're not working, you're here. It's, it's that. You can't corporately worship alone. You've got to come together. So that's important. But then secondly, community discipleship groups. We call ours gospel communities, growing in the gospel together. They meet weekly, and they live life together. They serve together. They grow together. You know all that, but it's critically important. And then thirdly, serving the church and the world. And we have this list of places where people can plug in. Some of them are weekly. Here's how you can get involved weekly. Some of them are projects. We got the football coming up. You want to help serve Southwest football? Sign up. But everybody needs to have a, a W plus two. I just explained that to you. That's our whole church strategy. You can write it on the back of a napkin, okay? People can understand it. They can grasp it. They can get it. People have been in church all their life, feel like something's missing. Isn't there more than that? What's your organization? What's your committee? I'm sure people who've not been in church, people who are new converts, oh, okay, I get that. My life's complicated enough. I, I need simplicity. I don't need complication. I want simplicity in my life. So we work hard at creating margins in people's lives so they have time to live their life, enjoy their life, make much of God with their life. All right? I think I'm out of time. Am I out of time? Uh, we celebrate the legacy often, like every week. Of the 18 who were originally there, 
Ten of them are still there. Few passed away, few went to care centers, but ten of them are originally there. Forrest Lowe was there the first Sunday I got there. He was passing out bulletins. Last Sunday, Forrest was passing out bulletins. So he's still there. We, we, we just absolutely love on them. I will tell you, initially, we, I, the onus was on the young people we brought in, the young people we reached. I had to meet with them and say, look, you've got to love these old people. And you've got to love them and love them and love them and love them and treat them like your grandparents. And you've got to ignore them when they maybe, maybe bark at you. You've got to ignore them when they don't like what you're doing. You've got, you got to just love them and hug them. And I, I, gave them a, I gave them specific tasks. I said, I want you to find out what their hobbies are. What does Forrest like to do? And find out. And then I want you to ask him to show you that. If he likes model trains, ask him if you can come look at his model trains. Tell him you got a six-year-old who loves trains. Could you bring him over to look at the trains? If Mildred raises daylilies, I want you to start raising daylilies in your yard. And I want you to go to Mildred's house and see if she'll help you dig up daylilies. Because if the only time these older people and these newer people get together is in church, there's conflict. But if I can get them together in their lives, it changes everything. And you have to be intentional with that. You have to work at that. But then we celebrate the legacy often. And there's so many Sundays, what I'll just say off the cuff. If you were here six years ago when this thing started over again, just stand up. And these people will stand up. And we'll just say, just, we're so grateful for the generosity and for the way you did this. And it, they want their life to count in the last half of their life, the last few decades, the last few years. And we've been giving... They are so proud of this. Now, frankly... Most of the young people in my church don't really understand the concept of who the nature of Southern Baptist Convention. I mean, they know we're Southern Baptists. They know we give, but they didn't grow up in it. These people grew up in it. So I asked, you know, I I sort of sent an email to these people and said, you know, this week, Southern Baptists have heard about what you've done. And they wanted that story shared with, with many, many people. I just try to celebrate them. And that just creates in them a generosity and a warmth. It doesn't happen quickly. It took six years. We, we, went, from, we, went, we went four years before we approached 100 people. And there were so many Sundays I was so discouraged. But, but God just really, really wouldn't let me go. And I'm glad he didn't. But um, there is a thing called social validation and critical mass. And we reached it when we got over 100. And it's been easier to get to 150. And, uh, and and we're, we're doing, again, Stetzer won't write a book or even a tweet about 150, but I'm pretty excited about it, and it feels 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 good to me, and uh, I, I'm loving it. And then we've, we've helped plant nine churches. We have a Haitian congregation that worships with us every twice a, every other month. So when they come upstairs, there's 60 or 70 of them, and that really fills it up and, and looks real good. Anyway, we do, that's what we looked like a couple of weeks ago. That's what happens when you cut down the pews. Uh, and people don't people don't sit as close together as they used to. But um, I will say everybody and I won't say everybody, but people in Brookside, people in Waldo, people in Prairie Village, they know something amazingly different has happened there. And they know this church has truly come roaring back. Now, if the dying church is unable to achieve this level of change, then we we come alongside them, provide some hospice care and help them learn to share their building and resources with new church plants. If they can't make the change then let them stay where they are. Love on them, but ask them to share their building and resources for new church plants. They may have some chairs, some tables, some preschool equipment. Ask them to give those away. Um, from a denominational standpoint, we talk about a potential legacy plant. We spend a few days talking and exploring the concept 
a pre-legacy plant. We'll engage in months-long conversation or consultation, which ends with the prescription. They either accept it all or not at all. And if they don't accept it at all, then we just that's the way it is. If they accept it, then we come. Then what we do is we we bring a coach and some partners and sometimes a new pastor. And some of these guys go out and preach. This guy will preach at Armour Heights next Sunday, and uh, and so I'm training them. And my passion is that we we got more than that now because we have a seminary in Kansas City, and some of the seminary students have hooked up with us. But my passion is that our church becomes a place where these guys can come. Now, some of these guys are this guy's a this guy's a physician. This guy's an architect. They're they're just going to be they're they're always going to be pastors in our church. But some of these guys are going to go do this again, and I want to bring in guys who want to intern with us for a year to two years. So they can see. And this kid texted me today. He was ready to think about starting a church in South Johnson County. And I've been, whatever he wants, Lord God, South Johnson, it's a growing area. He texted me today and he said, I can't get Armour Heights off my mind. Now, he could, it's so much easier to go to South Johnson County. But he's been with us for a year. And I mean, to, for him to be able to go to this declining church and, and invest in, so I think we're going to have to find ways to, to give guys an opportunity to intern and mentor and see it done so they have the concept of going and being on this long runway, taking years to get this accomplished. But if you go to a place and you plant a church and you grow to 150 in two years, you still got to buy land, you still got to build a building. You, still got, you go here and you work for five or six years and it grows to 150. You've got land, you've got a building, you've got all kinds of things. And plus, as I said, it's a two for one. The community sees something come back that only God could truly do. And so it's really important in that regard 25 years ago when i was on staff of the home mission board i went to uh i was supposed to go to a thing for u.s tours and they i was a big room where everybody's trying to get u.s tours to come do their thing and i had a sign in the table that said church planning and i was there all day and not one u.s tour came to my table they all went to resort ministries and student ministries and evangelism and appalachian ministries and i literally had to go grab kids and say would you please come to my table they had no concept of church planning didn't really never heard of it didn't know what it was that was just 25 years ago i know that seems like a long time to some of you but it's just half my life today if you go to a seminary that's all they want to talk about is church planning right who would have thought? And I'm so grateful. I weep when I think about these young men who want to plant churches. God, God called them to do that. It is, it is absolutely critical, and I'm so excited. But I want to see a time when young men say, there are, there are 85% of the churches in, in North America are in decline, and they need pastors, and I want to go there and invest my life, and I want to do this. And I think we can see that kind of sea change and we'll have young men who'll be willing to do that. And then God will really be made much of as we not just kick these churches to the curb and start new ones, but we start new ones where we need to start them and then restart these on the legacy. I had a video to show. I had a puppet show. I was No, not really. But I did have a video. If you go to our website, warnerroad.org, you can see all of our videos. Sorry I took so long.